Before we get into another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast, we want to say thank you to all our listeners. We appreciate your prayers, support, and encouragement. We also want to send a special thanks to our monthly financial partners. We could not do what we do without you. We have been able to equip college students at historically black colleges and universities and facilitate seminars for pastors and leaders because of your financial support. If the Jude 3 Project has been a blessing to you, please consider becoming a monthly partner. No gift is too small or large, whether you give one time or monthly. We appreciate it. You can give online at jude3project.com by hitting the donate button or by mail by sending your gift to Jude 3 Project at P.O. Box 26206, Jacksonville, Florida, 32226. Thanks again. Now let's join the Jude 3 Project podcast. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jude 3 Project. Watching another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jude 3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, Tim Mackey. Welcome, Tim. Hey, hello, Lisa, and everybody else. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited to have you on because you're the co-founder of the Bible Project, which is something I'm a big fan of. Your videos are amazing. Mm. Um, and so I watch them all the time and encourage mm-hmm. others to do so. Uh, we promoted it on our Facebook page as, mm. as well because I just want people to to see what you guys do because I think it's so great and helpful um, as a tool for um, studying mm. scripture. So uh, I kind of gave a, a brief introduction about you, but tell tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thanks for yeah doing that and sharing what what we're doing with. Um, yeah, there you go. I live in Portland, Oregon. Um, I'm a Bible nerd. Uh, (laughs) and I have the privilege of, uh, teaching the Bible in a few different settings. I was in local church ministry teaching mostly for the last, over the last 10 years or so. And, um, but also I've been teaching part-time, uh, at Western Seminary here in Portland, um, just biblical studies. Yeah. And then the Bible Project, um, my partner, John and I, we we like we co-founded it together. We started working on it five years ago, actually this fall. Uh, we just worked on the first couple of videos for a year and a half, but also had to think of a way to um, design a nonprofit animation studio. Like <laughs> it's not a very common thing. We didn't have that many like models to go off of, and so um, we went for the crowdsourcing option which was make videos, and if people find them valuable, then um, they can help us make more. And so that's kind of, we just went for it. And uh, it's been a slow burn where, you know, we'd release a video every three months, you know, then every two months. And now we have a, a great design team, and we can make videos about the Bible and biblical theology, put out about a video a week. Our main deal is to show people how the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus that has wisdom for the modern world. That's kind of our mission. 
Yeah, and it's it's awesome. Um, so today we're going to talk we're going to talk about the Bible Project a little bit more at the end towards the end. But the main focus we want to talk about today is something that you said you're very passionate about, which is the canonization of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people, when they talk about the canonization of Scripture, focus in on the New Testament, mm-hmm. which is awesome. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, Jesus affirmed the old, so we know it's authoritative. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus affirmed it. But I think it's still crucial and important for us to talk about the formation of the Old Testament mm-hmm. um, if we're going to be able to adequately mm-hmm. defend our faith. Mm-hmm. So uh, where do you like to start when when you talk mm-hmm. about the canonization of the, the Old Testament? Yeah, well, um, it's it's tricky. One one place, I, I mean, I always start with Jesus because the reason why I'm reading these, what to me, even though I love them, what to me are still strange and surprising ancient Hebrew texts. <laughs> like most people are not in the habit of reading thousands of year old, old texts from the other side of the planet. So why do Christians do that? That's weird. Like none of your other coworkers do that. So why do you? Um, and so well, we do it because um, we're followers of Jesus and Jesus appealed to his Bible as the way to understand who he was. He, he, he claimed and he's portrayed as bringing an already existing storyline, bringing that story to its fulfillment. He's constantly quoting from his Bible to make sense of himself, make claims about himself. So it's not just that, well, I, I believe it's authoritative because Jesus said it, although that's true. It's also, I am going to understand Jesus fully and in the most depth if I understand his Bible. Um, and so for me, that immediately then raises the question of, okay, so if a Christian Bible uh, is made up of Old and New Testaments, the first three quarters of the thing <laughs> is uh, the, what Jesus is talking about. So where did that thing come from? Um, and why does Jesus talk about it the way that he does? And then that I think that opens up then the put on our historian hat and uh, go discover that. It's, it's a wonderful field of historical research. It has been for centuries now. And there's a lot we don't know, but there's a lot we do know. And um, you'll, you won't find it on the History Channel. Oh my gosh, never watch anything on the History Channel about the origins of the Bible. <laughs> Just <laughs> FYI, it's, 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 it's sensational to watch, but hardly any of it's actually true, so anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's helpful. So, <laughs> um, how was the Old Testament canonization? Can, yeah, um, right. Where yeah. how did the canonization of the Old Testament <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, well, part of it is, um, I think our, our our word canon, which means measure or rule or collection, um, it's not a, the, the helpful concept to start with. I don't find. Um, so, but I think formation, you use that term, and that's the, that's the term I use too. So one is just kind of, we need to do a bit of a reset. Um, we don't realize how much our experience with books and digital texts in, in our world today shapes how we even conceive of something like a book. Um, and that, that's based on our technology, the way we experience books as either bound, you know, as, as codexes with a back or whatever, or we experience the Bible all bound together in one volume, um, or we experience it on a, whatever on your phone. But the point, it's all there. 
Um, and before, actually, uh, in the century or so of Jesus' time and after Jesus, that technology of the book with a bound back comes into existence. Um, for the majority of Israel's history, they did not encounter the Bible as a book. Um, and, but, and so the English word book appears in most Bibles many, many times, but it never means book. <laughs> what the English, it's kind of a weird thing. What it means is scroll. So when you see the word book in the Bible, you have to insert the concept of scroll. I think it actually might be more helpful if that was the English word our translations used. So you have to think of a, this was a collection of scrolls that, that grew and emerged over time, but they didn't come into existence just separately and, oh, I'll add this scroll and I'll add this scroll. Um, what was actually in the scrolls uh, was itself being shaped as the collection got larger over time. Um, so more like just to introduce that idea, then put it on pause, and then go back to the story. Um, because the, the origins of the Bible, at least a lot of it, are talk, actually talked about very plainly within the books themselves. Um, this is a fun bit of trivia that I often use. Uh, with people is when's the first mention of the writing of the Bible in in the story of the Bible, like when you start at page one. And most people think Moses, which is right, um, but it's not the part of the Moses story that they typically think, which is like the Ten Commandments or something. Um, there's a story right after uh, the Israelites escape from slavery in Egypt, and then there's a group called the Amalekites who want to uh, come uh, attack them, you know, plunder them. And of course, there are a bunch of escaped immigrants in the desert, like, <laughs> you know, they're ripe for plunder. Um, and so it's that story where uh, Moses goes up on a hill and holds up um, his arms and the staff. And as long as his arms are up, the people are winning. But then he's tired and, you know, so he has to get support, people to support his arms. So it's that story. As soon as that story is over and the Israelites win the battle, um, Moses uh, is told, God tells Moses to write down the story of what happened so that it can be remembered. So the first mention of the, the writing of this Bible, in the Bible, is, it feels mundane. <laughs> you know? It's not like uh, tablets from heaven, or it's not some you know, crazy vision. And Moses will have some of those, both of those experiences, but that's not the first mention of the writing of the Bible. I remember that struck me when it first hit me. Um, it's, of, it's for historical memory. It's that God's people uh, don't forget the story of what God has done in history to deliver them. So the, um, that gives us a frame, a category, like a bucket, to put a whole bunch of concepts of where the Bible come from. Well, a lot of it is some form of historical memory. It's preserving the story of these people and how they understood and experienced what God did, did for them through the history. There's a whole bunch of stuff that happened before Moses, in, right, in the book of Genesis, for example, so he didn't write that, uh, but he, uh, he or later authors who worked on the, the, the Torah or the Pentateuch after Moses received those historical memories from earlier, earlier generations and so on. Um, so, um, the most helpful image, just to pause on that point, to have in my mind, and I do this in classrooms all the time, is that the Bible is m 
not like a Word document that you sit down and type. Like these books didn't come into existence like that. Um, they come into existence much more like a family quilt where um, you can, it, it has pieces from your mom, from your grandma, from your great grandma, from your great great grandma, and you've received this heritage of quilt pieces. And some of the quilt pieces come not just by themselves, they come as already put together. Um, like the memories and the stories about Abraham, you know, or Jacob or something. But those were picked up and then inserted into a larger thing that made even greater sense of the stories about Jacob. Now the stories of Jacob are next to the stories of Joseph, next to the stories of Exodus. And that's someone's handiwork, you know, of an author putting those pieces together. Um, so you have this huge narrative. That's why the Hebrew Bible in its grand structure is itself just one gigantic narrative telling the story from the beginning um, to the exile, to the return from exile and the hope for the Messiah and the new covenant. But it's just this majestic quilt uh, telling the large narrative. And so there's lots of pieces in the story um, that talk about, um, like the Book of Kings, for example, he's constantly telling you where he got his information. Or if you want more information, he says, listen, you know, here's the story about Ahab or whatever. Um, he was a bad guy. He, here's a few things he did. If you want to read more about Ahab, go here. Go to the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. They're in the temple. <laughs> so that's interesting. He tells you, like, he's not even trying to give a comprehensive history. He's trying to select certain things to give a history of the monarchy in, in Israel to make, his, to make the theological point that it failed essentially, <laughs> but it didn't work. So it's very, my point here is, um, and I'll, I'll pause, I'm curious just what you're thinking or, or, or we didn't talk about if you want to do Q question and answer back and forth, but I'm happy to do that. <laughs> the main part is a whole, whole bunch of information in the Bible about how it came into existence. Doesn't have to do with prophets um, being seized by the Holy Spirit and just like in a, like the Bible writing trance or something like that. Um, we could we could talk about this because there are stories about something like that happening, and that's important. But a huge majority of the Bible comes into existence in this very kind of quote mundane way of uh, God guiding these different authors to um, to pass on an interpretation of Israel's history through this narrative to create hope for future generations. And I imagine it was fairly. Like when, I don't know, when uh, Moses got up to go to, you know, work or whatever. <laughs> what, it's hard to know, but it's like a lot of it had to do with sifting through quilt pieces and sewing them together of these narrative chunks. And um, you can just see, you know, it was the, it's the hard work of creating, creating books. Um, so to me, that's always been cool. There's so much information like this. And it was uh, a, a book that grew over time. So that's one layer to it. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's helpful. I think when when describing it like that, people kind of have this view that people just sat down and wrote under the uh, mm -hmm. unction of the Holy Spirit, and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, which I think God was working through it. Mm -hmm. But when you look throughout that and say, well, if... Mm -hmm. It's kind of hard to explain because mm -hmm. without 
-hmm. Well, let, let me try because <laughs> I, I know exactly what you're talking about, and it's actually I, I'm I'm finding more and more in modern Western Christianity, we have a really hard time, um, or rather, we we tolerate all kinds of really unhelpful thinking when it comes to inspiration. So yeah, we have this concept of, many people have a concept of, if the Bible is God's word, that means that it has to have come to us with little or no human agency. In other words, to protect its divine authority, we need to, um, if human fingers are a part of it, fingers are a part of it, they're incidental, or, because it's God's word, not a human word. And I think that, that's just a huge, huge mistake um, that's unnecessary and that's going to come back to bite uh, bite us. Um, so we're introducing a, a division that the Bible itself never, never makes. Um, when people in the Bible are empowered by God's spirit, it doesn't uh, mean that they aren't in control of themselves. There are a handful of times where that happens. And those are never stories about the writing of the Bible. <laughs> right? So that's interesting. Um, when you get people talking, when you get narratives that talk about the writing of the Bible, like in that one we looked at in that story, or other ones, like in Jeremiah, there's a whole story about the writing of the book of Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 36. And it describes Jeremiah and a professional scribe. They're in full control of their faculties. <laughs> you know, and they're writing and collecting and they're making the quilt. Um, so, and there are also most narratives about when the Holy Spirit comes on somebody like a David or like whatever, uh, like a Moses or, um, an Ezekiel there, it, it doesn't make them less human and it doesn't bypass their humanity. Just the opposite. It actually, those are, those are stories of how they become fully human. They become fully themselves. Like in Micah chapter 3, he says, I am full of the Spirit of God and power and justice to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So he's very much, and he gets in full political critique mode. So we need to be able to put back together, just like we do with Jesus, fully human, fully divine. We need to be able to hold those two together with the Bible. Um, otherwise, the human history of the Bible will become a scandal to you if um, you need it to have dropped out of heaven, which it clearly didn't. Um, and that, and that, but that's not a problem because the Bible never claims that it dropped out of heaven. Mm -hmm. And so I thank think you. that's helpful yeah. even when looking at numbers and you see maybe number errors mm. in some of the Old Testament mm. passages, if you have this idea yes, yes. dropped out, uh, you'll be, yes. you're, you're, you'll be, you'll be unable to reconcile that uh, in your mind. Correct. That's right. Yeah. Yes. You can still hold a high view of the Bible as um, a divine word. Um, but what inspiration means is that God guided these people so that what they wrote of their own will and intention is what God wanted his people to hear. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, the formation of the books of the Bible is not simple. Like it was multi-stage. And complex. And then after that, the textual history of the Bible is even more complex and, and beautiful and fascinating. This is where I did my graduate uh, research projects. 
uh, was all in the Dead Sea Scrolls and the early translations of the Bible. And it's very complicated, but it stopped being a scandal to me and it started becoming this really beautiful heritage of how these texts were treasured and passed down and how they're a divine and human word um, to God's people. Um, so that's, that, yeah, there you go. That's one, that's one piece. Go ahead. Touch more on, on that, what you were just speaking to. Oh, well, the main, well, first let me back up and just finish uh, one, one other piece about the books of the Hebrew Bible themselves. Okay. So a lot of it's narrative and they were written like ancient historians made narratives, like making the quilt. Um, another huge piece though, about the Hebrew Bible is um, the covenant. So what dominates the first five books of the Bible uh, is laws, the laws that were given to ancient Israel. And so the, this is actually the second mention of the writing of the Bible in the Bible after that story of Moses is the story of God and Israel getting married in the covenant on Mount Sinai. And all those laws represent the terms of that covenant relationship. And the whole narrative is about how they fail, they break the covenant, and how God, they break their covenant with God, but God doesn't break his covenant with them. But what God has to do is somehow change the hearts of his covenant people so that they can truly love and be faithful to him. Um, and so that's where the story of the Hebrew scriptures ends, is with the hope of Moses and the prophets of a new covenant, that God would take the laws of the covenant and, as Jeremiah says, write them on the human heart. Or Ezekiel said, I'll put my spirit in my people to change them so that they can love and obey. And so the, the Hebrew scriptures is both a narrative telling about the failure and the, of the human condition, but it's also a merit, it's a covenant or a testament. That's why we call it the Old Testament. It's a covenant document that's inviting us into a living vital relationship with God, um, anticipating that we're going to fail and anticipating that God's going to compensate for our failure in some way in the future. Um, and so that's what the, he the Hebrew Bible is, this elaborate narrative covenant quilt <laughs> uh, that, was, that many, many authors put their hands to. And there you go. It, just, it tells you many points within the book itself how it came into existence. And so you can choose to reject that story or accept it. You can accept it as a, a, a realistic account of the human condition and of what God's up to in the world. Or you can reject it, you know. Um, but now we're back to the Jesus part. Jesus accepted it. This was his story. He believed that he was the one both covering for the failures of Israel and humanity and opening up that new covenant family for all humans to come and be a part of his family that he opened up when he rose from the dead. So um, there's a lot more to it. Obviously, there's always more. Uh, but it's the elaborate covenant quilt is is what the Hebrew scriptures are. Once um, they are, well, let's see. So the books themselves come into existence in lots of different ways of the Old Testament. But there is some period where they're all, all these different scrolls are existing. You have Isaiah, you have whatever, um, Samuel, you have Psalms. And some, at these later stages, we're talking about probably even after the period of Ezra and Nehemiah, um, 
the, the contributors to the formation of the Bible stop being named. And that makes good sense because they're not trying to draw attention to themselves. They're trying to pass on the quilt. Um, but they're passing it on in such a way that you don't miss what's going on in the story. And so there's still a lot of what you could say editorial or quilt to use the sewing work being done right down to that late period as each book is woven into the quilt and so on. Um, and then it's somewhere in the 300s to 200s um, that we start to be able to track back manuscripts of the Bible from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, and yeah, what we find is complicated. This is back to what you just asked me about. It's complicated. <laughs> it's beautiful, but it's complicated. So I can talk more about that. But um, anyway, just the when I was given this paradigm of the Hebrew Bible as a quilt that came into existence over a long period of time, um, but the date of the final form of the quilt is not the same thing as the date of individual pieces within the quilt. Um, kind of like, or a, a different metaphor is like a museum exhibit where um, somebody went through like a museum curator and arranged an exhibit for you to walk through. But the arrangement of the exhibit is not the same date as the pieces of the exhibit. And so that's what it's like to read the Hebrew Bible. It's like walking through a museum and someone from the last phase of its formation is guiding you through by how they designed the Hebrew Bible to be read as you go through these old old narratives and poems and so on. Yeah, because that leads to, you know, the, the discussion of it's not written, written in order. Um, <laughs> or mm -hmm, put together mm. in, in order. Yes. Uh, and so that that's important to note um, yes. as well when you're thinking about how, like the formation of the Old Testament. Yes. When we talk about um, scripture and the passages that the that books that were left out that may be in the, the Catholic Bible. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What what would be uh, yes. the reason? Yeah, well, a, a part of it is, again, our concept of in and out, um, I think is, again, we're, that's a category we have from the technology that we've encountered the Bible through, namely a single bound volume. Mm -hmm. um, and I, as far as we can tell, that's just not how ancient Jews of the period were thinking about it. So they had, an, they had a very clear conception of the scriptures, plural. They use the, they use the word plural, scriptures. Um, and when they talk about the shape of the collection, they talk about it as a three-part collection called the, the law, the prophets, and... And then they use different, different Jewish communities use different phrases to talk about it. Some, like Jesus, he says the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Um, and the Psalms was designed to be the first book of a third collection. Uh, the Hebrew Bible was given, our ancient museum curators, the last people with the organizers of the Hebrew scriptures, arranged it as a three-part collection, Torah, prophets, and writings. And that corresponds to... Uh, People in the Dead Sea Scrolls community talked about it in three-part shape and so on. Um, so there was an awareness of there is a coherent collection. Um, and, but it doesn't seem like it was a huge concern to them to create really clear borders around the collection. It's just the collection. Mm -hmm. um, and Jewish literature didn't stop being produced. 
um, in that period. Um, so, uh, for example, there's a whole lot of literature, like the Qumran community that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, they, uh, there are as many copies as the Book of Enoch, for example, uh, among the Dead Sea Scrolls, as there are for like the Book of Jeremiah, for example. So it's almost, it, it seems, the reality is that in ancient Judaism, different communities had a different sh shape, <laughs> different way of drawing those borders. Um, and they felt comfortable um, also treasuring other writings uh, alongside the three-part collection of the Hebrew scriptures because all of these writings are themselves. What is Enoch? He's a figure from the Bible. <laughs> And it's a bunch of narratives about his extraordinary visions and things that he saw. Most of those visions are inspired by things elsewhere in the collection of the Hebrew scriptures. Um, a lot of these books are further commentary or reflection upon the initial Hebrew scriptures. So instead of thinking about it like a bound volume and what ones were in and what ones were out, um, maybe a, a more helpful way is to think about it as more as like a stream. Or something like that and there's the headwaters of the stream and then there's the lower phase of the stream and I mean just this is this is not simple and it's bothered me for a long time um, different Jewish communities camped out at different places about where the important dividing line was between the headwaters and the lower parts of the stream um, and that ambiguity continued even into the early Jesus movement. Um, the reason why we have the books of the Apocrypha is because Christians read and valued these books. And they were passed on in Greek um, and Latin in the early Christian communities because they read them so much. Um, they're not quoted as much as the other books of the Hebrew scriptures. The apostles don't quote from them in the same way. But they read them and they passed them on. So uh, there you go. I don't know. The first time I heard all this, it really bothered me. But the more I've sat with it over time, I've just, uh, they just didn't have the categories we did. Um, and it's not that they didn't know what was in their Bible. They just had a different way of thinking about it because they didn't have it in one volume ever. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a big part of it is that right there. They didn't have it in one volume. And so they, they thought about their scriptures and the other books in a different way. Mm -hmm. than we do. I don't know if that makes any sense at all, what I just said. Yeah. But no, that, <laughs> that makes because I mean, when we think about the scriptures, we think about a single volume, like you're saying, but they mm -hmm. had mm -hmm. scroll and mm -hmm. they didn't always have access to every single scroll. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if I'm just, I just have, if I just have yes. uh, Habakkuk and, and uh, Isaiah, mm -hmm. I'm not really always focused on the other books. Yeah, I'm just focused on the 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 two I have. Yeah, and that's right. That's so, right. I think yeah, in the New Testament, you can observe a trend though, um, of like what books are quoted and treated as a divine human, you know, as a covenant, the covenant document. And so it's all the it's all the classics, you know, it's the books of the Torah, the Pentateuch, the prophets, um, but you know, like Esther. Um, is never like explicitly quoted in the New Testament. Okay. <laughs> but if you look at what Esther is, it's fully woven into the quilt. 
like in so many cool ways it's woven into the quilt it's a part of it um jude uh has that quote from the book of enoch mm -hmm. and so um but the quote that he quotes is itself a passage of Enoch that's just blending together three quotes from Deuteronomy and Malachi. <laughs> so, you know, so, um, and what did, what did you think about the book of Enoch? I, we, I mean, we can't interview him, you know? Um, but my hunch was he thought it was awesome. Uh, whether or not he thought it was Holy scripture, I, I don't know, but um, that doesn't mean we shouldn't read it. Um, but that also doesn't mean we should think it's part of the Bible because as the collection went on, if you look at Enoch for what it is, it's different. It's not woven into the quilt in quite the same way. Its design features um, don't weave it into the quilt of the scriptures, but it's still an awesome book, and Jude thought it was awesome. So there you go. Um, I don't, uh, yeah, yep. <laughs> <laughs> I can, I mean, I, we can go on, uh, but that's the basic point, is that it's not as clear cut of a line in the early Jesus movement and in ancient Judaism, but, and no one seemed to have had a problem with this. Like this wasn't a crisis for people back then. At least they didn't see it as a crisis. Mm -hmm. When it comes to early church history, what was the, the conversation like around mm -hmm. the Old Testament scriptures? Yeah, yes. Um, well, a lot of it was, if our baseline is Jesus, this is kind of back to our beginning. If our baseline is Jesus, um, then we look to, um, the Old Testament scriptures and how they're put together as a witness to Jesus. Um, but that can get kind of subjective, and it has been subjective throughout church history, all the way down to the Reformation, where um, Martin Luther himself would question even some books in the New Testament, because <laughs> he questioned whether they were actually about Jesus, like the book of James, for example. He, uh, Martin Luther was really nervous about the book of James. So um, it's been, but it's been true, like um, in different forms of Christianity, some have included the, these other books called the Deuterocanon as kind of this secondary collection alongside the Hebrew scriptures. Um, what you don't have debates about is the things that's in the big three part um, collection of the Hebrew scriptures. Um, those just, once they drop onto the scene, um, as one whole unified quilt um, about 200 years before Jesus. Everybody's quoting from them. Everybody's, um, what they're not debating is whether these books are authoritative. They're debating what they mean, their interpretation. And so that's kind of ends up being true in the early church as well. Um, the, he the, the Hebrew scriptures, which most people are reading in Greek anyway by that time, um, they aren't debating whether or not they're scripture or have divine authority. They're debating about what they mean and how they refer to Jesus. And so um, some of the classic ones, this, this, there's a line that got used a lot in early church fathers called the regula fide or the rule of faith. Um, are these the books that tell the story of what God's been doing through history to lead up to Jesus as the savior and Lord of the world? And so a book like Enoch is just doing, it's singing a kind of a different tune. <laughs> it's just, it's about something different, you know, or there's all kinds of other literature that existed that Christians read, but that didn't seem to be telling the story in the same way. 
Um, so it's kind of analogous to the way the, the other gospels, you know, of um, the gospel of Thomas, for example, they had Jesus teaching, but it, he didn't, he doesn't die and he doesn't raise from the dead. So it's a different Jesus. And so it wasn't ever accepted by the majority because it just was telling a different story. So it's kind of similar to how the Old Testament was being viewed in the early church. Mm -hmm. And I think that's helpful, um, especially why this topic is really important to me because I know a lot of people who are struggling to interpret mm. the Old Testament in light of the New Testament mm -hmm. and just kind of honing in on the New Testament and not really treating the Old Testament care um, yeah. yes. that it should have. And I think it's important to me because I, I enjoy the yeah. Old Testament. Right now I'm going through Ecclesiastes and studying mm. my devotional time. And it's mm. just so interesting, the difference between Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they seem like they're at odds mm -hmm. <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, mm. And if you don't know, like understanding the different genres of scripture, mm -hmm. you, you would think that there's a, a conflict between what he's saying in Proverbs and, mm. and what he's saying in Ecclesiastes. So I think it's, it's very important that we treat mm -hmm. and understand how what's, what's happening in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Because if, if you put books together, sometimes you, you're like, well, are we repeating things? I know you, mm. you guys did a video with Kings and Chronicles. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. About mm -hmm. The the parallels and the differences mm -hmm. uh, in in that book. Um, mm -hmm. Why do you think people kind of have struggled to interpret the Old Testament in light of the New? Oh man, because it's crazy. It's, <laughs> it's crazy. There's a talking snake on page three. For goodness' sake, you know what I mean? Like it's and the his the blood, the sex scandals, the violence, the. Um, and I think it's more just, this is, this is, it really gets to the heart of why we created the Bible project is, um, I was, uh, I became a Christian when I was almost 20 and I had, had not read the Bible at any length at all. And so I was really compelled by Jesus. That's why I became a Christian <laughs> was the person of Jesus. Um, not because of the Bible, uh, and, but once I, started to follow Jesus in my early 20s, I started to read the Bible because when I would read about Jesus, he would talk about the Bible. And and I was just bewildered. Like, what is going on? What does any of this have to do with Jesus? Um, and then that's just become part of my own just journey as a Christian. Um, that's what motivated me to go to college <laughs> was that question. <laughs> I didn't have any college aspirations until I had that question. And then I signed up for classes at a local Christian university. And that's, um, and now it's like a total flip-flop. I still think the Bible is strange and bizarre, um, especially the first three quarters. But now it's strange and bizarre in the same way that a, a really unique friend, a really unique best friend of yours, like you get to know them and now you see what they have to offer the world. <laughs> and it's amazing, but they're really unique, you know, and you don't know anybody else like them. And that's kind of how I feel about it, is the way the Hebrew scriptures work and the, how they're depicting the human condition, how they're depicting the story of Israel as the key thread through human history um, to lead up towards a human coming who could be the kind of human that we're all made to be, but that we fail to be, named Jesus of Nazareth. 
Um, the way that story works, I, now it's just like, it's so brilliant. This is the most brilliant set of texts I've ever come across in my entire life. And they have so much to offer. I don't, I don't even know how to make sense of Jesus without the first three quarters of my Bible now. It's so indispensable. Well, that's a big part of why we're doing the Bible Project is to help people see how wired tight the whole thing is as a beautiful literary um, and theological statement about who Jesus is and why he's so awesome. So there you go. I agree with you. The Old Testament's crazy, but it's beautiful once you have eyes to see it, you know. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we're, we're, we've ran out of time. Um, mm. For those who want to study more of the Old Testament, what, mm. what books would you recommend uh, mm. in the formation of the Old Testament? What books have been helpful to you? Mm. And tell them how they can get in contact with you and anything else you want to say about the Bible Project. Yeah. Um, well, one, one easy free set of resources that is just on your computer is online. Um, is yeah, the Bible Project, we have dozens and dozens, now I think over 100 videos about all the books of the Bible, themes that run throughout the Bible. Um, and so I designed those both for personal use and to use as in cl the classroom as I teach um, to introduce people to how a whole book of the Bible works so that you can dive in and read it for yourself now with kind of a roadmap. Um, some of my favorite resources about where the Bible came from. Um, one, it's a super short little paperback by a guy named John Salehammer called How We Got the Bible. It's a novel title, but um, very, he was a very formative teacher for me. Um, he also, I would encourage people, if the first five books of the Bible seem daunting to you, because they are, um, John Salehammer also wrote a great commentary um, you don't have to know any Hebrew or anything, though he'll talk about Hebrew, but always in a way to take you along to help you understand it, called uh, the Pentateuch as Narrative. And it'll just, it'll blow your mind forever. You'll never read the Old Testament the same way. Um, a more in-depth uh, exploration of the origins of the Bible is by a guy named Paul Wagner, and it's called From Text to Translation or the journey from text to translation. It's the whole history of the Bible from the invention of the alphabet to our modern <laughs> English translations. Um, it's big and in-depth, but um, odds are anybody's questions are gonna be answered. He did a great job in that book. So there you go. Uh, the Bible Project's resources are for online for free at thebibleproject.com, or you can go to YouTube and go just search for the Bible Project and you'll find us there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Tim. I, I think this is a helpful interview for our, our viewers. And I really, really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Yeah, you're so welcome, Lisa. It was good to meet you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses 
based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.